This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Friday morning from 10 to 11 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. College towns tend to be transitory. Students and faculty come and at some point move on. And hopefully the friends we make move to houses with guest rooms so we get to go and visit them. Next month, a good friend to many of us in the arts in Columbia is set to leave town for a new life adventure. Photographer Shane Epping has touched many lives during his 18 years in Columbia as an artist, a photojournalist, an adjunct instructor at the University of Missouri's Journalism School and as a volunteer. His photos have not only been published in multiple national media, ESPN, ABC, CBS Sports, Fox Sports, NFL.com, the list goes on, but were also a near constant entry in every Columbia Art League show during my time there. His new adventure takes him to the University of Wyoming, where he has been appointed to a tenure track endowed professorship to teach and support photojournalism. So when that offer comes knocking, you really can't say no. But I know it was a tough decision, not only because of the friends and family he leaves, but also because of, as he listed it in an online post, True False, Roots and Blues, Boondoddle, Columbia Art League, Ragtag, Cape and Park, Hit Records, Monster Bike Bash, Uprise, Shakespeare's, North Village Arts District, First Fridays, Sparkies, Rockbridge State Park, Art Underground, Missouri Theatre, The Blue Note, Rose Musical, The Alley Bar, Cooper's Landing, Easley Hill, Missouri River, Heart of America Marathon, The School of Journalism, and the countless miles of trails. So yeah, it's tough to leave. So I am both delighted and sad to do the arts exit interview for my pal, Shane Epping. Hello, Shane. Hello, Diana. Thank you very much. It's very nice. Well, let's see if we can both get through this without crying, because although (laughs) I am hugely thrilled for you that the job of your dreams has come along, you and Mary will leave a pretty huge hole in our little community. How do you feel about leaving? Well, as you kind of alluded to, um, Very mixed emotions. I mean, people have kind of asked me, oh, Shane, are you so excited uh, to go to Colorado and, and, you know, new adventures? And um, I don't really think I'm excited. Not right now, I'm not. Um, And and really, I haven't been since uh, accepting the job offer, partly because of all the work and preparation that it takes into moving, you know, when you've been someplace for uh, 18 years first of all, just the practicality of having a lot of stuff as in true-blooded patriot American and uh, <laughs> believer in capitalism, right? So there's that side. And then uh, just all the connections that I've made with people, like you said, I photograph so many people in this town, whether that's professionally or just informally, you know, at different events on the streets. And so very, very emotional for me to think about leaving Columbia. And you have to ask yourself, is this the right thing to do? Is this a mistake? Is all of this worth it? So all of those kind of mixed emotions are going on right now in my head. You know, I'm hoping that once uh, there's some stability, things will be better, right? Like when I'm sitting out in the backyard staring at the uh, Front Range Mountains. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> maybe I'll be more 
at ease. Going is always worse than the being gone, I find. It's the going that hurts. I think so. So in your beautiful, poignant and heartfelt social media post, you quoted a graduation speech that Conan O'Brien gave where he said, it is our failure to become our perceived ideal that ultimately defines us and makes us unique. It's not easy, but if you accept your misfortune and handle it right, your perceived failure can become a catalyst for profound reinvention. Why did that quote mean so much to you? Well, I first of all, I'd like to say that uh, Dr. Michelle Teddy here at Mizzou was the one that kind of directed me to that speech. I had not uh, seen or heard it until she pointed that out to me. And um, he had said something differently and, and recently when he was talking about leaving TBS. And so anyway, Michelle Teddy was like, hey, you should go check out this graduation speech that he said. So I did. And um, I think that what that particular line resonated with me because I think it's been like that for me in terms of um, this kind of perceived ideal of what we're supposed to be. You know, going back to high school for me in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I always wanted to be something uh, special. I thought that good things would happen to me. Um, and for me, that was always professionally driven, that I would go and, and go to law school and work for some sort of corporate entity and make a lot of money. I just really felt like that was going to be my future and how I define success. And I left Tulsa, like I couldn't wait to leave Tulsa. I went to school in Chicago and uh, none of that happened, right? I graduated from college. I was kind of a so-so student and I worked for a lawyer, a litigator in Tulsa, and it just really wasn't for me. And so I was at a real crossroads at 22 years of age, 23 years of age. And that led me to the AmeriCorps National Civilian Community Corps, where I did some community service for a year. But like, it was just kind of this continual thing of like, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? Like, what am I supposed to do? And, and continually trying to define my success or my sense of purpose through some sort of professional achievement. And for me, that was a moving target, uh, something that I never was able to really kind of, uh, I don't know, actualize. Unless you look at it, I guess, long-term in the big picture, which is where I'm at now. At some point I realized I really loved taking pictures. I loved looking at pictures. So I came to Mizzou, I got the master's degree in photojournalism. But even then, right, I was working for a Mizzou for 10 years and always kind of wondering in the back of my head, like, should I be doing something more important? Or, you know, how many pictures of the columns can I take? <laughs> you know what I mean? And this idea that there was something better. Now, I'm not saying that I have figured it out because I haven't. But, uh, you know, I did have an opportunity to keep shooting video and taking pictures at an organization here in Missouri. And it's like, well, do I do that? Or do I kind of really go for it? And, uh, pursue this PhD and, and try to become a, a college instructor. And so that's kind of where it led. Huge, huge, huge leap of faith. And so when I think about Conan O'Brien and, and this failure of uh, perceived idea of success, uh, that's been my trajectory. I, I, I failed uh, miserably. <laughs> I think that probably resonates with a lot of people, though. I think that for, well, certainly for me, I mean, I spent my younger life planning to go to university. And I remember standing in my graduation gown and thinking, damn, 
I have no plans for the rest of my life. I didn't think beyond getting a degree. That was it. And so, yeah, I think you pursue all these different ideas and and that's incredibly freeing. And to have that luxury to be able to pursue different options as they come along and, and redefine what success means to you. That's right. So you're at the all but dissertation stage of your doctoral degree at Mizzou. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what you're researching for your PhD. So I think uh, what I'll be looking at, well, I guess I know what I'll be looking at since I had to propose it and get it officially approved. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> it just took me quite a while. Uh, so I'm going to look at how COVID-19 was documented in the world by photojournalists. And so I'll probably begin the research uh, data collection uh, March of 2020. I think that was around the time the CDC kind of said, hey, we're in a global pandemic. And then I'll look at it through one particular news outlet's uh, Instagram feed is what I'm thinking. Because uh, since it's a visual platform and you know they're reaching quite a few people on that and it's a wire agency. So I know the photos were going lots of different places in the world. Because I kind of feel like there are two ways of thinking about COVID and how it was documented with pictures. One of those is that the pictures were not dramatic enough, that uh, because Americans are kind of afraid of looking at death or confronting it or talking about it, that the photos were nuanced. And so there's an argument that had they been more in our face and maybe graphic, that Americans could have uh, taken it seriously. Now, that's a huge argument, and who knows if that's even true, but that is one argument, right? Then on the other end of the spectrum, there's an argument that says, well, no, the photos were too much for us to look at. You know, you couldn't really kind of appreciate the subtlety and invisibleness of the disease because there were just these extreme examples that were documented on camera, and people have this tendency to turn away from extreme photos so there's that argument. And so I'm kind of interested in like, okay, well, let's just, you know, what is this based on these, these arguments? Let's just go through and look and see how it was documented, first of all. So a little bit kind of a, a social semiotic visual analysis and seeing what's in these photos, maybe America versus other countries. And then the meatier part of the dissertation will be talking to photojournalists about how they did that. And so when was the last time that, photojournalists across the world were documenting a global pandemic. It's been a while, right? And what does that look like? In other words, first of all, it's invisible. You can't really see it. And there are lots of measures that photojournalists have to take to protect themselves from the disease. And what happens if they get it? They might get sick. And I think different types of people are dealing with documenting it differently. And the freelancers which is the market has changed to where it's largely freelancing with photojournalism as opposed to kind of the legacy model of newspapers and magazines. You know, what does it mean to go out and be a professional photojournalist and not really have much of a safety net if you do get sick or you don't want to spread it to other people? So I'm kind of curious what that means a little bit in terms of norms and values of the profession and what we were seeing and what we weren't seeing, maybe a little bit of cultural differences. So that kind of stuff. I think the comparison between countries is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Whether we in America are more squeamish or sensitive to images that upset us, whether 
it's more brutal in Italy or more honest in Australia. I think that is a really fascinating part. There will definitely be international representation. And then, you know, another thing, too, is like if we do see death in graphic images in America, who is in those pictures, right? Are they Americans or are they somebody else? Mm. So backing up a little, when did your love of photography start? Do you have a moment when you captured something and you thought, this is really magical that I can do this? Or was it a slow burn over time? Mm, I guess it was a slow burn. I mean, somebody uh, gave me a camera from high school graduation, a good friend of my mom's, Leon. And uh, I still have that camera. And so I just kind of have always enjoyed documenting what's around me. And then when I graduated from college, that same friend gave me a set of golf clubs, right? <laughs> so this, this is kind of metaphorical, right? Like the golf clubs were, were representative of like, okay, Shane, here's when you're out there, you know, hanging out with lawyers or whatever in the future, you got to hit the links and, you know, do the business talk and make deals. That's kind of what those golf clubs represented. And Little side note, since I'm moving, I just gave those golf clubs away yesterday <laughs> to a lawyer. <laughs> it's a true story. That's so perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, uh, he came over to bring some boxes and I saw a golf club in his truck and I said, hey, do you golf? So anyway, he was so happy to get those golf clubs. So yeah, it was kind of a slow burn. And then, um, you know, went to college and, and didn't really do much photography. It always just seemed like... Uh, it was an impossible thing to do. It just seemed like this hobby. It didn't really seem like a real thing that you would go out and take pictures and make money. I don't know why it seemed that way to me. And then um, there was this moment when I was a college counselor in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and I just didn't want to do that anymore. I'd been doing that for six years and teaching uh, history and coaching wrestling. And uh, I got admitted to Mizzou and I uh, had my own office. It was a nice office. And I stood up and I got down on my knees in front of the window and I literally kissed the carpet beneath me. And I was like, <laughs> just so thankful, right, that my life was about to change. Now, I've joked about whether or not that was a good thing, but that, that is a true story. So, yeah, it's been kind of a slow burn. And then, um, you know, when you and I met at Columbia Art League, that's kind of cool because I had went to Spain in 2012 to see a friend of mine. Uh, Mary and I went over there. And we stayed with my friend Ramon. And uh, he's like, you know, you ever put up any work, any of your photos? And I was like, nah, man, you know, nobody, nobody would buy my stuff. Like, and, he, and, and he's like, well, it's not really about buying your work. You know, it's just more about like the, the act of doing it. Like you should do it. And so I came back and I think it was interpretations, maybe uh, the first one that you put together. And uh, it, was a, it was a picture of Ramon silhouetted at Finisterre at the end of the world. They call it there in the northwest corner of Spain. And... Uh, that kind of kicked me off like, oh, maybe I should uh, take pictures and put them out there. And I was doing a little bit of that professionally, but that kind of like really inspired me to approach it a little more artistically. And then I just started entering every single Columbia Art League show for several years. Yeah. And I always loved your interpretations work. I really felt like you had embrace the spirit of what I was trying to do with this, which was have these conversations between different art forms. And you always delivered such 
an amazing work, both the one that you originally submitted that then a poet responded to. And then when I send you the piece of poetry, then you were so creative in how you responded. I always really look forward to what you were going to submit for the interpretation shows. Thank you for saying that. And, you know, I can remember when you asked me to MC it that first year and, uh, I like didn't have anything. I was like, oh man, I'm going to be standing in front of people. I like went out and bought some nice pants and some new shoes, which I still, <laughs> I still own and can fit into, by the way. So I'm pretty Good proud job. of that, proud of that accomplishment. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so then, you know, I think I, you had me MC a couple of years and, and that was just so awesome for me to be involved in something that I always consider just not possible for me, I guess. And speaking of interpretations, I just, uh, finalized my photo for this year's interpretations, interpretation six. And so I will be printing that and framing it, which I really shouldn't even be doing right now, right? Because I'm moving next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, glad, I'm glad you've got your priorities right there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So I know for you, taking pictures is how you experience the world and, and find meaning. But mm -hmm. can you put into words for me how having that camera lens in front of you alters or enhances your relationship with the world around you. Why is there more meaning for you in having that lens there? Well, one thing I can say is that, um, and, and I've shown this little clip to students, I'll start here. There's this movie called Smoke that came out several years ago. And in that movie, uh, a couple actors, William Hurt and Harvey Keitel, and, and Harvey Keitel owns a cigar shop and he's a photographer on the side and uh, he runs into um, William Hurt and he invites him back to his house to look at all of his photo collection and he breaks out these notebooks and William Hurt's turning the pages of these notebooks and uh, he's going quickly through this photo collection and Harvey Keitel says to him like, you know, you really need to slow down. You're, you're not going to get what's going on in these pictures. And he's like, well, what do you mean? Like every single picture, it's the same picture. Because Harvey Keitel would take his camera out and put it on a tripod and take a picture of his cigar shop every single day at the same time for years, right? And William Hurst is kind of laughing like, you know, are you crazy? It's like the same picture, man. And uh, he's like, no, it's not the same picture. The light is different. Some days it's sunny. Some days it's rainy. There's different people in the photos. And sometimes it's the same people, but they look different or they're with other different people. And then William Hurt slows down and he pauses and he says out loud, oh, my God. So one of these photos stops him in his tracks and it's a photo of a woman. And we never really know if it's like a wife or a girlfriend or who it is, but we know that she was important to him and that she's no longer in his wife. Maybe she died. Maybe she left him. I don't know, but she's gone. And then he just starts crying and he has this moment and Harvey Keitel pats him on the back. And uh, that to me has always been a great representation of what photos mean to me, that you can go through and experience the world and not really pay attention and just conclude that, it's all just the same or there's nothing really special about any particular person or thing that's happening. But if you look at it as a photographer, that's not how I've seen it, right? That everybody is different and that these photos are proof that you matter, that what you're doing matters and that we're important to one another. And we can memorialize it. It's a cliche. It's a total cliche that, you know, we can kind of stop time and freeze it with a camera. 
But uh, for me, it's true. And it's a huge reason why I do it. It's like proof of my existence. That's not a phrase that's original to me. Uh, Other people have used it, you know. But I have documented a lot of death, more, I would say, than a lot of photographers. And uh, I feel like I'm speaking in a bunch of cliches here. Life is fleeting, et cetera. But all of this stuff is true. And I really mean it. Life is fleeting. And uh, here I is, I'm 16 years in Colombia, and I'm about to leave. So one thing I've told people, if anybody's asked for words of wisdom or whatever, it's just to engage while you're here and take advantage of the time that you have with other people. I mean, that would probably be the biggest regret that I have is that I could have done more. I could have spent more time with people or whether that's having a coffee or going out to lunch or doing an activity. And then at some point, you're just not able to do that anymore because you won't be here, whatever that looks like. So for me, leaving Columbia and being like, well, here's this 18 year gap of time. You know, what do I have to show for it? One of the things that means a lot to me in in terms of answering that question is I have these pictures. You know, when I think about Diana Moxon, I have pictures of you and I can find those and be like, (laughs) Diana meant something to me and she was important. And I have this picture to remind me of that. And I feel that way about a lot of people that I photographed and in moments I've had and experiences. And that's why I think photos matter. Well, you, as you said, you photographed a lot of death, maybe more than many photographers, most photographers. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the volunteering work you've done here in Colombia. Mm-hmm. You have three children, Faye, Iris and Emerson. But in some ways, you leave a part of Faye's spirit with us in Colombia as she demised the day before being born in 2012. And it was through Faye that you were introduced to an incredible organization called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep that pairs professional photographers with grieving parents who have just lost a newborn baby so they can gift keepsake photographs of their child. I mean, how has that work changed your life? Uh, I think uh, that's a tough question to answer. Um, I did about 115, I think, demises during that period of time where I was actively doing that. And I've cut back on that since being a full-time doctoral student. Uh, How did it change me? I mean, you know, there were times where I wondered if I should just step away from it because it was too much, you know, is this too much kind of gloom and doom? Is it too much despair? And not all of the cases were the same. Not all the demises were the same. Some of them I could go document and people in some instances were very kind of jovial in in the sense that they were just appreciative for the life as it were during pregnancy. And I could kind of walk away from those and, and not be too bothered. But then, you know, there were instances where young children were taken off of life support, for example, maybe one or two years into life. And so I became this person that the hospital would call when the children were going to be taken off. So, you know, oh, well, what does that mean? It means the child's going to die. And we want to have the very end of it documented with a camera. Again, going back to this idea that photos matter to people, that they're proof of our value and that we were here and that we mattered. And so even though I know all of that's true and that the pictures were important, you know, walking into a room where a human being, albeit young, 
I guess in some ways it's even more profound because they have all this life uh, potentially ahead of them right there in front of me. Um, and then I'm going to take pictures of them. That got to be pretty challenging emotionally for me. And I, I don't think it affected my personal life. Uh, I don't know what my wife, what Mary would say about that, but I did feel value, you know, in answering your question in terms of that sense of purpose. Like there were times where I wondered, is this a selfish act that I'm here doing, taking pictures to people because of the fact that this makes me feel important, that this brings me meaning being here, you know, like kind of complicated feelings in a way. Um, I mean, nothing is really straightforward and simple, I guess, in life when it comes to this kind of stuff. And so uh, I was always trying to figure this stuff out, <laughs> you know, and uh, at the end of the day, I knew that people wanted the photos and that it was important to be there. So I just kept doing it until I think I just couldn't find the time. So how has that affected me now? How has it maybe changed you as a photographer, if that's easier to answer? Uh, boy, how has it changed me as a photographer? You know what? I think one thing it, it did, when I went to graduate school to study journalism and photojournalism, I was presented with the biggest and, and, and the best and, and the most awesome kind of photojournalist out there, right? Like that's who would, we would learn about and, and maybe aspire to follow in their footsteps. And some of those people would speak to us in person that they were guest speakers. Photojournalism is kind of a small community. And uh, I think there was part of me that for a long time was like, God, like I'll never be one of those people. And, you know, I'm just going to go be a university photographer. And that's really not that big of a deal. And I think getting back to your question in terms of maybe how the now I lay me down to sleep stuff changed me as a photographer is that uh, I think I realized that I didn't have to be out shooting for National Geographic, right, or a major news outlet to kind of make myself feel good or substantiated in the work that I was doing, that I could be right here in Columbia, Missouri, or wherever, and take important pictures for people. That would be, I guess, the most important fundamental way it changed me as a photographer. Well, you have captured some incredible moments in the world of sports during your time photographing for Mizzou, and you've taken gorgeous shots of the ocean and mountains and cityscapes and rural idylls. But for me, when I look at your portfolio of work, it is the emotional honesty of a snap moment in time that you capture in your portraits that I find particularly spellbinding. <laughs> your portraits really hold me. Talk to me a little bit about photographing people and how you get them to give you that moment. Thank you for saying that, Diana. Um, I don't know. I, I think uh, I try to keep the portraits pretty simple. I like to use natural light. If you've been around me a little bit, I mean, I'm pretty easygoing and uh, somewhat personable, not all the time, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I try to put people at ease and sometimes I'll like show people the pictures, like as I'm taking them and like, you know, ask for a little bit of feedback from them too. Or I'll ask people where they want to be photographed, right? Like, well, where would you like to be photographed? Or is there an important place to you? You know, I just try to kind of make it as easy as I can on them. And, uh, cause a lot of people don't like getting their picture taken, right? They don't, they don't like the way they look. And uh, 
I try to be appreciative of, of that fact and uh, maybe using, you know, a little bit of humor and stuff. But taking all the like mystery out of it, I think helps and just showing them, okay, well, you don't like that picture? Okay, cool. We won't do that. And just making it a, uh, a collaborative thing. I was, when I was looking through your website at all the photographs of people that I know, and, and gosh, you just captured everybody so perfectly. And I thought, why have I not got a Shane Epping portrait of me? <laughs> well, I've, I've got about a week here, Diana, so maybe we can I'm going to have to come to Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I know I've got some informal stuff of you, but probably no formal no, portraits. Yeah. So this new job at the University of Wyoming is thanks to a large donation from a Wyoming rancher in honor of his son, who was a photojournalist and died some years ago. What do you know about the person behind the endowment? Well, thank you for asking that. It's uh, Bobby Modell is is his name. And he had a son, as you mentioned, Bobby Modell Jr. And Bobby Modell Jr. went to the, went to the University of Wyoming. And he did not study photojournalism or photography, uh, but that was his passion. And he ended up freelancing. He shot for now. He was actually on the cover of National Geographic magazine as a uh, climber, climbing a mountain, not like as, you know what I mean? Isn't that cool? So, um, and then he passed away, I think... Uh, was it 2009? And his dad, um, this is kind of a funny story. I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you. Nobody's listening, right? <laughs> no, it's okay. just us. It's just <laughs> okay, us. It's right. So um, the father wanted to honor his son who had passed away and he knew his son, you know, photojournalism was important to him. And so he went to Wyoming and was like, uh, hey, I'd like to honor my son. And he contacted the communication department up there, communication and journalism. And so it's my understanding, okay, that he, that he sent a representative and to, to talk about what they could do to memorialize his son. And uh, the person who they asked said, well, if you want to, you know, make a gift to our department or to the university, we would like to buy a human being, you know, a full-time person. And the person who was representing Bobby Modell or Bob Modell the representative said, well, no, we, you know, we can't do that. I mean, that's like a million dollars, you know, um, you know, what else do you got? Oh, okay. Well, you know, we, we can't do that. So like, let's, uh, let's do a little bit of money and we'll just hire like an adjunct, right. Who will teach two or three classes a year. And we'll just always have that kind of money there to keep, keep hiring that adjunct. And then they came up with some other stuff. Okay. And, uh, so they go back to the father, the rancher, Mr. Modell, and he's like, okay, well, you know, what do we got here? And well, you know, they're shooting for the moon here on, on their first choice, uh, you know, hiring a full-time position. And, you know, I told them that we're not going to be able to do that. He's like, well, why can't we do that? Like, what's that cost? Oh, well, that's, you know, that's a million dollars. And he's like, okay, uh, well, you know, let me make a couple phone calls. That's what I want to do. And that's what happened. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. I mean, how many times is that happening in the world of higher education these days? Oh, I mean, I can't even tell you how unique this is, Diana. I mean, what I tell people, or maybe I've told maybe one or two people, if you had asked me before going into this uh, doctoral program, okay, Shane, like, you know, you're giving up a chance to work somewhere out there and make some money, like you're going back to school in a higher ed market that's pretty unpredictable, what would you like to happen at the end of this? I probably would have described something very similar to what's happened at the University of Wyoming. 
<laughs> right? Oh, I just hope that somebody comes along and like gives a big chunk of money to a university and creates an endowed professorship and then... Uh, <laughs> they hire you. Yeah, right. I mean, what are the chances? I mean, people would have looked at me like, uh, you're crazy, dude. Like that's never, ever going to happen. So um, now it would have been even better if it had happened here in Columbia, Missouri. But, uh, you know, can't get it all. <laughs> So why, why, I mean, obviously they interviewed people across the country, I and mean, this is a hard question to answer, but I mean, what is your sense of why they chose you? You know, um, I uh, was listening to an interview, Howard Stern, and he was interviewing um, Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad. It's a series I love. Brian Cranston's, I think, has a daughter maybe who wants to go into acting and has faced some rejection. And um, Howard Stern asked Brian Cranston, like, oh, is that hard? Do you, you know, you feel bad for her? And he's like, no, no, absolutely not. That's just like part of the thing. And, and Brian Cranston says, you know, the mistake people make when they interview is that they think that they're interviewing for a job when they're an actor and, and they're not interviewing for a job. They are performing. They're performing a character, right, that's being presented to them. And Howard joked about that, you know, like, oh, I always thought I was, you know, interviewing for a job. But that really resonated with me. That is exactly how I approach this interview. And let me tell you, interviewing for an academic or faculty position, it takes forever. It takes months. And then once you actually do it, like you sit down, you do like a couple interviews and they sit down maybe for the final interview. This is all through Zoom, right? It's It was two full days. I mean, I met with every single person in the department. I had to present twice. I had to do a teaching session. I had to present on research. I prepared a lot is what I'm saying. And I didn't prepare so much that I was trying to get this job. I treated it as here's been this awesome, cool opportunity that's been given to the University of Wyoming. I'm going to interview like somebody who recognizes and appreciates why this is so special. Not so much because... I want to be the person who gets it, but I am a storyteller and I can teach and I can get at presenting myself as that person who can communicate to these people why me as the interviewer, not so much me, Shane Epping, but me as the interviewer would be good at filling this role. And um, in the very first session, part of this interviewing process. It was bookended with the same person, the first interview and the last interview. So like in the first 30 minutes, the woman started crying who was interviewing me and not because she was so upset to be interviewing me. Right. But more, <laughs> <laughs> but more like Shane, I just really think that you understand what this position is about. And I think it's because not so much, and I really mean this, not so much because I'm this awesome person. Listen, there are tons of, of better photographers in the world than me. Millions, millions. I mean, you know, I'm an average. What a okay, few. <laughs> I'm an average okay <laughs> photographer. There's tons of good photographers. There's tons of good people out there that could do this job. It's just that I took the interviewing. I had the opportunity to interview. The PhD stuff really helped me a lot. And I took the interviewing process very seriously. I did my research and I communicated about why I thought this type of position, honoring this human being. And you think about my trajectory, you know, you think about a couple of the questions that you've asked me, like documenting death, why is photography important to me? You know, um, we didn't talk too much about teaching, but that's something like this position is like all those things rolled up into one. And at the very end, 
I had to do a teaching presentation. So this is like one of the very last things that I did on my research. And I said to them, you know, well, we really haven't looked at my photography too much together as a group. I would like to do that. And so I went to my website and I have some stuff on there. I did a What is Columbia show with a bunch of other local photographers. And I did a lot of personal work in that show. And I was kind of going through and I had scripted a little bit of what I was going to say, but not entirely. And it was kind of this nice moment for me because the interviewing was almost done. And here it was, I was presenting this like one of the final things and I was ready. And uh, I was going through these photos and and some stuff I had done of COVID-19 as well um, when I was at home with my daughter, Iris, and my son, Emerson, last year. And I'm looking at these photos and I'm talking them through with the committee because I said, I know you guys may have looked at these photos, you know, and part of getting ready to interview me, but you haven't really heard me talk about them. And uh, unexpectedly for me, I started getting very emotional going through these photos. And there was this one COVID photo that I took of my mom coming to visit. And she was outside of our uh, dining room and she was outside of the window. And, you know, the kind of shots that have become uh, cliches of COVID-19 with people on one side of the window and people on the other. But for me, it wasn't a cliche because it was my mom and my kids and her grandkids and uh I looked at this photo and I was telling them like who it was and I had to stop. I was going to start crying because that photo was a literal separation for sure. But also I think somewhere in my head, I knew that I was interviewing for a position that really was going to separate me and these kids from my mom. And uh, I almost couldn't Well, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't keep talking about it. I just full on stopped. And that was not scripted. That was very unexpected. And also, I think dealing with the emotion of a lot of people in those photos here in Colombia. And I kind of look back on that interview and I'm like, you know, nobody will ever see that. But in a way, it was kind of a farewell photographically to me. It was like this therapeutic session with all these strangers in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah. So it was your emotional honesty, which you find in your photographs that got you the job where you go and get to kiss the carpet in Mm -hmm. Laramie. I think that you're right. You're very smart, Diana. Emotional honesty. I think that is what really helped me. And I mean, at one point, I'll tell you how honest I was. They said to me, Shane, um, you said a lot there in your research, but you didn't talk about your dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) Can you, can you think you can finish your dissertation in the next year? And, uh, I said three words. I said, I don't know. And they kind of looked at me, you know, and, uh, the interviewer was like, well, okay. Uh, thank you for being honest, (laughs) but (laughs) I was so drained and I was just like, you guys have seen everything that I have to offer. I have just laid it out on the table and I'm not going to make any false promises here. Uh, that's just not who I am. I mean, you've been around me a little bit. Like I'm just kind of a straight shooter and, mm-hmm. but I'm, I am, I am honest to a fault, I think. So you are the first person to be offered this position. It's brand new. Mm-hmm. What legacy do you want to create for this new endowed professorship? When I think about teachers or advisors who have mentored me, that's kind of where my mind goes when stepping into a position like this, like, can I do this, you know? And I have to think about 
the great people that I've had at Mizzou. First of all, all the faculty in the J school have been amazing, both when I was a PhD student, uh, or I'm still a PhD student, and also uh, when I was a master's student. And then my advisor when I was a master's student and the director of the photojournalism program, David Reese, has always been very, very, very important to me. And, And not just me. When he retired... I kind of put out this invite for people to come say their farewells to David and people flew in and this is no exaggeration. People flew in from all over the world to see David teach his last class in the J school back in 2018, three years ago. I had never seen people do that for another human being, you know, a college teacher. I mean, we had my friend Leah from London. There was uh, somebody that came in from Germany, uh, you know, people flying from all over the coast, uh, west and east. I mean, it was just this room full of love. And so I will never, I will never be David Reese. That's impossible. But David had a certain kind of presence. And I think one thing I took away from him was to be compassionate. You know, so I think going into this program in Wyoming, I really hope that that I can channel a little bit of David Reese energy and be compassionate to these students that want to come in and learn about photojournalism and nurture it and make it a place where students can study it and recognize all the cool things that they can do with photojournalism. I don't think I'm looking at it as, oh, hey, I am going to make this the best photo J place in the country. I I, I don't look at it like that at all because I'm just one person, you know, heading out there. So I think I just want to leave my mark in a diminutive way in David Reese's footsteps where it's like treating the students, you know, respectfully and well and nurturing and then finding some cool stuff for us to do. There'll be a little bit of money with this fellowship, I think, each year to put back into the student experience. And so I'm hoping that that will involve some traveling. I've reached out to actually a professor here at Mizzou who is doing some traveling in the world and doing some social justice. So I think that's one thing specifically I would like to do is see if we can kind of link social justice with photojournalism and, you know, not do too much of the like parachuting, you know, where you kind of drop in and drop out and take your pictures and then nobody ever sees you again. I'm hoping that we can avoid that. But honoring Bobby Modell's spirit, you know, all along the way too, that um, he was an adventurer who started, I think, as just wanting to take cool pictures of throughout the world. And then once he was out there traveling and seeing injustices that exist, he evolved into what he considered to be a social justice photojournalist. And so I would like that to be part of it. Well, It's hard to imagine Columbia without you in it. What are you going to miss about us besides the obvious friends and family? Like what components of Columbia do you think have touched you the most? Mm. Uh, So many. When I wrote that long Facebook post uh, a few weeks ago, you know, that really took a lot of time and energy out of me. And I had people friending me, Diana, who were like, I don't know you. But I really hope you friend me. I just just post just popped up on my wall. It was so beautifully written. It was just adorable. Oh gosh, thank you. And so I put a lot of myself into that. And I think uh, I will miss the the community. I mean, I know a lot of people here, and most of those relationships uh, have been really positive and kind of. 
I've had a lot of support from people here. You know, when we lost Faye in 2012 and meal trains and people just stepping up. And I think Mary and, you know, and I have tried to kind of do that to reciprocate that too. Uh, I will miss that. It's such an easy town to live and thrive in. I mean, I can be kind of a okay photographer and in Columbia, Missouri, I'm, I'm respected for that. And then people are nice to me. And you respect it because you're a great photographer. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. You are not more than okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I just, you know, I'm just going to miss all those relationships, you know, and it's like, I might see you on a first Friday and like, what's the likelihood in Columbia, Missouri that you go out and do something and you don't like see somebody that you know, right? Whether that's a grocery store. And I would say nine times out of 10, maybe the statistics are a little bit higher. Those are always positive interactions, you know, occasionally, you know, oh, I don't want to see that person. But like, um, you know, almost, <laughs> <laughs> almost always, it's these cool little uh, moments. Um, you know, I've got my running community. I've got my arts community. And sometimes they overlap my photo community. So it's weird, Diana, to think about having all those people that I've spent time with and had conversations and to step into an environment where I'm just a nobody. That will be, that'll be challenging for me. My daughter has said it's going to, she's seven. She said, you know, I've got all my friends here. It's going to be really hard for me to leave. And she said that to me the other night in the dining room and I just stopped and I said, I know Iris, it's going to be hard for me too. And she's like, oh yeah, well, like how many friends do you have? Right. This kind of, this, this kind of like accusatory tone, you know, <laughs> like you don't have any friends. And uh, she just kind of caught me at a moment or something. And I was like, you know, I have a lot of friends here. I have a lot of friends, Iris, and I know what you're feeling. And it's going to be hard. It is. And, you know, change is always scary, particularly in advance of it happening. But also, as Conan O'Brien said, it is a time for profound reinvention and the excitement of the mm -hmm. new. I mean, it's exciting once it all starts happening. What are you most looking forward to as you move to the mountains? Oh, that's a great question. So I went up recently to try and find a house. And by the way, don't try to go... Don't go to Fort Collins and try to buy the house. I mean, if you're a millionaire, okay, sure. But <laughs> <laughs> if you're just a little, you know, lowly assistant professor, don't do it. So anyway, I went there and uh, first of all, we didn't buy a house. We're, we're going to rent. The market there is insane. But uh, one thing I wanted to do, so we're going to live in Fort Collins and I'm going to drive to Wyoming and I have to be on campus at least two days a week. And, you know, I'll probably try to be there more than that. But the commute, it's substantial. It's 60 miles, right? One way. And I said, yeah, I want to drive that. Like while I was there visiting a couple of weeks ago, I just want to, I had driven it like when we went out to, before I accepted the job, but I wanted to drive it like for real this time, you know, cause like I, I accepted the job now. So I rented this, uh, this Jeep Wrangler, which was awesome. And I could take off the tops on it, you know, super nice car that I could never afford in real life. So you know, it's like it's $50,000 Jeep and, uh, it's a beautiful day out there. And I drive from Fort Collins to the University of Wyoming to, to basically the office that I'll be working in. And let me tell you something. There's this highway there, 287, that goes from Fort Collins to Laramie. And it is beautiful. I mean, it was so reassuring to me with all of this 
turmoil and uncertainty that's going on right now. Like my wife doesn't have a job yet. You know, that we hadn't had an Iris enrolled. I'm stepping into a position. I don't really know anybody I've never done before. We can't sell our house. We're tr- having trouble selling our house here in Columbia. We, we didn't have a place to live quite yet there in Fort Collins. So all this stuff, like pretty heavy stuff. And I'm driving north to Laramie on 287 and you're just surrounded. I mean, surrounded by mountains and some of the most beautiful scenery I've been around in a while. And I'm like, you know, if I have to do an hour commute, I've never seen one as, as nice as this. So that's one thing I'm really looking forward to is just this idea that I'm out west, I'm in a new place, and I'm honoring the idea that you take a leap of faith, that in the presence of uncertainty and doubt and and difficulties, you take the leap of faith because you know deep down in your core that you have to do this thing. You have to at least try. And so that commute and driving up there with my sunroof down and this Jeep and, you know, listening to the radio, uh, that was a nice moment for me to kind of clear my head and, and to feel good about it. I pulled over in true photo fashion. I took a selfie in front of the Wyoming sign. I'll send it to you because okay. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Perfect. I look I look totally ridiculous. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking. For, and also my kids and being in the mountains. Mary's always wanted to live in the mountains and we will. We will be in the mountains. So uh, no bugs either. Things I'm looking forward to, Diana, way oh, less, yeah. way less bugs. It does get hot there, but the humidity is so much lower and I'm a runner. And so I love the idea of low humidity, you know, and then all the stuff of like working with college students and trying to nurture this program and communicate the idea that, hey, there's this thing called photojournalism and people do it and they really love it. And they'll do it like no matter what, even if they don't get paid, they'll go out and do it. And let's talk about why that is and and let's try to embrace it. That's the goal. I love leaps of faith. I think they are very life affirming. And once you've done it once, they are quite addicting. And you know that you can land, you you leap off a cliff, and you don't know how you're going to land. And then you land and you think, yeah, that was great. That was worth it. The experience, the fear, uh, the uh, uncertainty was all worth it. So I think even though I'm very sad that you won't be just in Colombia to bump into from time to time. But I think that you have made a great leap of faith and you will be rewarded for that leap of faith. Do you promise to come back and visit us regularly? <laughs> yes, of course. And my mom is here right in Moberly. And so uh, this has been uh, tough. This has been tough on my mom. And so we're just, we're trying to work out all the, all the things, you know, and she's coming out with us for the first couple of weeks and, you know, and flying from, uh, St. Louis to Kansas City to Denver is pretty easy. It's a short flight. So I hope to come back for things like true false and, you know, I'll have time off in the summers. And so, and because my mom is here, I'm definitely connected to this area of the country. I was born in Moberly, Missouri. So, or maybe I go out there and it just totally sucks, Diana. <laughs> well, then we will be very happy if you come home. <laughs> no one's going to be sad if you come back to town. So well, that's great. I, well, there'll be a few people that'll be sad. But anyway, we won't talk about those guys. Um, but 
you know, and I would just like to say too, you know, thanks so much to you for nurturing um, really kind of my transition into the art community here in Columbia 10 years ago. And, you know, you left CAL and that was tough, you know, because you kind of get used to people being somewhere. And uh, you're just like, well, God, like, I remember thinking like, well, there'll be no Columbia Art League. I mean, if Diana Moss leaves Columbia <laughs> Art League and uh, obviously Columbia Art League is still going and stuff, but I really do. And working with Kelsey, I've worked with her over there and it's been great. Well, thank you. So thankful to you for, for helping me. Uh, you know, that's what it takes. That, 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 those are the things about Columbia that, that I'll miss. Yeah. Well, we'll still be here and still doing it whenever you come back, even when you come back for for short visits. Shane Epping's captivating photography can be seen on his website at shaneepping.com. And if you want to know more about the work done by the pro bono photographers like Shane to help parents grieving the demise of their newborn, visit nowilaymedowntosleep.org. Shane, I wish you and Mary so much happiness and success as you head west, but I am already looking forward to the day that you come back (laughs) (laughs) so thank you for all the energy and creativity you have added to the columbia arts community over the past 16 years we miss you already thank you diana thank you i miss you too on last week's show i talked with three composers who are premiering new works at this week's mizzou international composers festival each of which will be performed by the alarm will sound orchestra One of the world premiere concerts was streamed earlier this week and is available online. And the second world premiere concert will be streamed via the Mizzou New Music YouTube channel and via Facebook Live tomorrow night at 7.30. I played a short clip of music during last week's show by composer Nina Shaker. And as we have a little extra time left today, I wanted to revisit the work called Quirkhead and play a little more of it for you as I found it such a compelling musical exploration of the composer's own experience of living with obsessive compulsive disorder. So, once again, here is a little more of Nina Shaker's work, Quirkhead, written in 2017 and performed here by Third Angle Music with soprano Tony Arnold.
the floor. Hands to the floor. Now turn around and run around the bed three times and go. Faster, faster.
I confess, I am a little obsessed with this work by Nina Shaker called Quirkhead. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today, photographer Shane Epping. And thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, mid-Missouri! Missouri.